Hello, today on Gareth Jones on Speed, I'm going to look at the coolest car to be built in Wales since the Gilburn Invader. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth. As you know, the clue's in the name. I'm a Welshman. I may have mentioned that at some point. So I'm very pleased today to find myself driving through Wales to Llandringod Wells in Powys, where a car company called River Simple have been established. Now, River Simple are offering a car unlike any other on sale at the moment. It's a hydrogen fuel cell car. But it's not a big, heavy one. It's what I like to describe as a minimum automobile. A small, lightweight car. There are huge advantages in making cars light, as we know from motorsport. So if you apply that kind of thinking again to modern automotive electric drivetrains, you might come up with something rather clever. To find out more about River Simple and their car, the Raza, I've got an appointment with their leader, Hugo Spowers. Hugo, thank you very much for having me. Tell me about River Simple, because it seems unlikely to some people that you might find, if you like, a frontier car manufacturing organisation in Sandrine Dodwells, of all places. Why here? Well, I mean, it's a fantastic place to be. We've been here for now two years, and it's been so much more of a success than we ever expected it to be. Why? It's a fantastic quality of life. We want to enjoy what we're doing. I mean, River Simple is not a sackcloth and ashes type of business. We think that sustainability is terribly important. It's practical. It's within our grasp. And we want to enjoy it. And it's an awful lot easier to ask somebody to move to somewhere like Lindrindod than to Coventry, quite frankly. I mean, the prospect would be pretty grim if I was looking at it. And there's no traffic. The outdoors are absolutely fantastic. Prices are low. If anybody comes here, they can always upsize. It's just a brilliant place for families to grow up. And in the days of the internet, why do you need to be stuck in the hustle and bustle of a city. However, you are designing and building a fuel cell car made out of carbon fibre fitted with supercapacitors. The skills, the technology, the bits, are they available locally? They're generally not available locally, but we pride ourselves actually not getting involved in the subsystem technology. Our strength is in staying away from developing new widgets, new technologies, new materials. We're saying that the technology already exists. And it's always true when you have a step change the breakthrough comes in the systems integration putting the car together in a totally different pattern of relationships but using components available off the shelf so i like to liken it to cooper and lotus who put the uk on the motor racing map we were nowhere in 1960 and then cooper and lotus came along and with tiny budgets they beat all the big continental teams the extraordinary thing is that neither of them ever built an engine They all just bought an engine off the shelf that anybody else could buy. And then literally three men in a shed put together a different car, different pattern of relationships, and beat Ferrari, who were spending fortunes on their engine. When you have a step change, and that was going to rear engine, and you build a completely different machine... The systems integration, the architecture of the car, is what yields the big breakthroughs. At the moment, the auto industry is trying to put hydrogen fuel cell technology into the technology of the cars they make today, Mm -hmm. which is all optimised around petrol engines. And so they're doing some brilliant engineering... But they're trying to persuade a fuel cell to behave like a petrol engine, which it really doesn't do very well. Fuel cells are rubbish at power density. So they're trying to get more and more power out of a smaller and smaller volume. And it's brilliant 
engineering, but they're solving problems of their own creation. Yes, I was about to say that. Yeah, they're making it difficult for themselves. Absolutely. If you can source components that work already and put them together, it's the idea of putting those components together is what you're selling. Is this a marketing exercise? Well, I think the brand is terribly important to us. And so we're very careful about how the brand is perceived. But we don't have any money to spend on the brand or marketing, if that's what you mean. Mm. So we have been careful and we do think that we have positioned the brand with clear water between ourselves and anybody else in the auto sector. And we do think that the brand is a very vital part to this being an investable company because we are open sourcing the technology we're not trying to pretend as many new startups do in the tech sector that our ip portfolio is the value in the company Mm. we think we've got a much better and completely different set of standards for how to build a car but if we try and hang on to that all ourselves and capture all the profit of that we'll get into a standards war that we'll lose and sony lost the standards war over betamax with a better tape yeah and if sony lose a standards war then river simple certainly going to lose the standards war so that is a much greater threat to us than competition we actually want people to copy us we want people to build cars that are as light as this with the motors and the fuel cells that we need which are much smaller much lighter and less powerful than the ones going into the hydrogen cars that the industry is producing and that builds volume in our supply chain so our costs come down it means that we have generic components from many companies all using the same technology and the same components so independent companies can support those in the field so we don't have to all establish mark specific distribution networks we can collaborate effectively if you like so in that instance the brand is the most valuable thing in the company. It is also much more protectable than IP because it doesn't expire after 20 years. And if you look at the auto industry, the value in these companies is all in the brand. Uh-huh. It's not in the IP. Everybody uh-huh. knows what everybody else is doing. It's all being optimised and refined to the last tiny fraction of a percent. But you still get companies building the same car with a different badge on, on the same production line, and one car with a stronger brand is a £1,000 more in the showroom. And they spit blood about it, but that is the value in a company. It's not the IP. Where does the name River Simple come from? It's your old address, isn't it, or something? (laughs) No, no. Our office for the previous five years was an old mill overlooking a river. But the name just predated us taking that office. And we did a very big workshop with about 20 really interesting and bright people, all friends, all for free, spent a whole day coming up with the roots of words to make a word that could be trademarked in the auto sector. And then it was all completely flawed by my seven-year-old son who came up with that (laughs) one evening. Uh, It was much better than anything else we'd come up with. (laughs) You came up with uh, (laughs) eco-integration fluid moment thing. (laughs) Exactly. But we have post-rationalised it to really make sense. We really like it. We really believe it. We wanted a name that didn't sound like a car company. Mm. Rivers are very powerful but they're considered benign in every culture. They're powerful and they get where they want to go. They work their way around obstacles, but they are benign. And we also believe strongly in simplicity beyond complexity. We believe it's much harder to design a simple but highly elegant system. Correct. Than it is to build something complicated. We've said it. We don't mean crude simplicity. We mean sophisticated simplicity. Yeah, we've said it on the programme ourselves a number of times. It's easy relatively, to design a twin-turbocharged V8 four-wheel drive supercar and impress. To build a car which is less than 50 brake horsepower, weighs less than 600 kilos and is wonderful, 
is difficult. So there's elegance in the simplicity of that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm on message, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you think about it, I think if you asked a statistically significant number of automotive engineers who their hero is, I would think more than anybody would vote for Colin Chapman. Yeah, yeah. And he made the simplest cars that we've seen in the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Add lightness. <laughs> Keep it simple, stupid. That's what yes, they say, absolutely. isn't it? I'm going to play devil's advocate here, mm. right? You're not a bunch of communists and you're not just a bunch of students with a good idea, are you? <laughs> No, I think we're all a bit too long in the tooth to be classified as students. And we're not a bunch of communists in that certainly this is a for-profit business. It's unashamedly set up to be attractive to investors. I mean, I have to confess that we didn't set this up to make money. It's not necessarily the easiest way to make money. But we would all be very disappointed if we, in our retirement, had to worry about our mortgage. I want to see the car. Yes. Can I see the car? Sure, of course you can. She's called, I, I say she, because it seems quite feminine. She's called yes. Raza. Raza, yes, as in tabula rasa. So tabula rasa is the Latin for a clean slate. And it refers, obviously, to the car being a clean sheet of paper approach to how you build a car. But it also refers to the company. It's a clean sheet of paper approach we've taken to building the company, the business model, and the governance of the company as well. I get it. I get it. Take me to the car. Go on, lead on, Hugo. Yeah. So, here there we are. She Gareth. is with a Welsh number plate. I know. With a Welsh number plate. <laughs> Welsh badge on the number plates, indeed. Appropriate for lots of reasons, not least of all because it was built here, but of course yes. the fuel cell which drives this car, as you heard me say, is a Welsh invention. It is a Welsh invention, exactly. Does yes. that help? When you go for funding to Welsh governments and stuff, do you flag up the whole Welsh thing? We do, and I think it is beginning to achieve some penetration. I don't think people have realised this until now, but in September there is going to be, um, I think it's the British Association of Sciences or something like that, having a festival of science in Swansea, and they are premising it all on William Grove, who brought the first such association meeting to Swansea in about 1848, I think. Ah. And so it is gradually creeping up the radar. And, of course, fuel cells were a very obscure concept until very recently. So I think that's part of the reason why it's not known. Just how, But he was a brilliant man in other respects as well, not just fuel cells. What age are you, Hugo? I'm 56. Now. I thought you were about the same age as me. I'm 54. <laughs> I remember during the Apollo space programme, as a young man who followed the Apollo programme, yes. one of the things that was always flagged up was that, yes, and the fuel cells and the computer stage are the British components of the Apollo 7 5 moon rocket and I always felt sort of a connection that way didn't realise it was Welsh knew it was British you know and so it has an association for me personally with really advanced technologies the moon landing was the greatest technological leap we ever made absolutely frontier technology needs to be sexy and uh, (laughs) if you associate with the moon programme it's pretty darn sexy Uh, absolutely and of course they used fuel cells right from the 1950s because it was the lightest way to get the electricity in space Mm -hmm. and cars if you want an efficient car it's utterly tightly coupled to its weight Mm -hmm. you need the car to be light for it to be efficient and this is why we're using fuel cells rather than batteries I think Scotty said it rather well in Star Trek once. You can change the laws of physics. <laughs> and so if you make something smaller and lighter, it's going to be more efficient. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Right. I'm going to walk around so, the car. She is pretty. This is important. We sell cars on their looks. You know, we sell indeed. cars on the message indeed. that comes with them. We sell them on their looks. And this, I give my honest and instinctive Lovely reaction point. to the car. It's got a little Citroen SM about it, yes. which is very yes. futurist. 
It's clearly small. It looks like a small car because of the narrowness of the wheels. It gives you a, okay, that's going to be light, so it's got to be small. The clues are in there. It's cute. (laughs) Non-threatening. Was that a deliberate design ethic? We did want it to be non-threatening, and I wouldn't say that we ever thought cute was what we were aiming for. We absolutely wanted people to take one of these cars because they want it. Mm -hmm. We're not marketing to people's eco-guilt. And the company was set up to make a step change in environmental impact. But that's no basis for marketing a product. And yes, there are some early adopters who would take it on that basis, but it's not going to have any significant penetration. So we wanted a car that was going to be something people were proud to be seen in. And we were delighted when four years ago now Chris Wrights joined us, who was head of design for Alpha and Fiat, did the Fiat 500 and so on. And rather pointedly, when he joined, one of the broadsheets did a full page spread on him joining us. And he said very pointedly that not that he was leaving one car manufacturer to join another, but he was leaving the auto industry because it was going in the wrong direction to join River Simple because they're going in the right direction. Uh-huh. But he is a crucial part of the team, and we absolutely wanted a car that was appealing, that people wanted to be in, that was cool and sexy, but non-threatening as well, as you say. So we've put an awful lot of effort into making the car not only aerodynamic, which means it has to be low, but despite being low, being easy to get in and out of. Mm-hmm. We don't want somebody who's 70 to struggle to get in and out, which is what would happen with a Lotus. So the doors, is that why you have, do you call those scissors doors or gull wings, what are they? We call them butterfly doors, I don't know. Butterfly. They're becoming quite popular now, aren't they? We've done them for entirely practical reasons, and there are three key reasons. First of all, when you open that door, it much more quickly opens a space for your feet to come out mm-hmm. than a door that opens normally, mm-hmm. because the bit where your feet go out is the bit that opens least until you open the door a long way. So it means you have to bend your knees less to get your feet out. Secondly, the door wraps into the roof, so the cant rail, instead of being outboard of your head, is inboard. Mm-hmm. It's between the driver and the passenger. Out so, of the way. So it's out of the way, and you can just stand up. You don't have to duck under that cant rail. And thirdly, the sill is wrapped in very tightly against the seat, and the door wraps around outside the sill. The door is very thick and very strong for side impact, but the sill is very close to the seat. So when you swing your legs out and put them on the ground, your feet aren't very far from your centre of gravity. Right. which makes it much easier to stand up. Right, yeah, you don't fall over, you're not teaching. Yeah, interesting. What's the length of the car and the width? What are the dimensions? Do you know them off the top it's of It's about 3.7 metres long and mm-hmm. it's just over 1.6 metres wide. So a it's mini? small. I think it's smaller than a Mini. <laughs> the it's modern m- Mini. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> the trade description tax sort of questions there, really. <laughs> I've said it myself. I really have. It's narrow and that is the... Biggest diffuser, aerodynamic scoop, vent, whatever you want to call it at the rear. I think I've seen on any car this side of something racing at Le Mans. I could physically, I'm crawling around on the floor, I should point (laughs) it now. I can actually almost bend over on my arms and legs and get right under the back of this car. That's huge. It's actually slightly bigger than the Venturi on the racing car because, of course, we haven't got any drive shafts or differential. Uh So it is nutly clean under tray. And we worked with a guy called Ben Wood who did the aerodynamics on Jensen Button's car when he won the World Championship. 
And it wasn't until the second meeting that he suddenly realised that we really mean it when we say we've got a clean undertrace. They all say that, but this is really you true this actually time. actually have. <laughs> As I remember, the car which Jensen won the World Championship in, the Braun, had a double defuser. Yes. So he's quite good at re isn't he? <laughs> he You've is. got the right man there. But equally, we wanted to make sure not only is it low drag, but it's zero lift at the back uh-huh. in crosswinds. Yeah. Because being a light car, our aerodynamic stability is terribly important as well. But we don't want a lot of downforce because downforce costs drag. Yeah. And so because of this enormous venturi, we've got some sculptured inlets just in front of the rear wheels so that you don't develop a great big suction underneath the car. And it bleeds some air from the side of the car into the venturi to avoid generating a whole lot of downforce and therefore drag. So you've still but got we have got zero lift, yeah. virtually zero lift. You've got lower pressure underneath the car because yep. of that, but how you're and managing it, it's not generating positive pressure which would give you lift or too much <coughs> negative pressure which would give you drag but grip yes. on corners. It gives you low pressure, but we've engineered this so we don't get too much low pressure. Mm. Mm. What's the weight of the car? 580 kilos. That's nothing. Not a lot, is it? No, it really isn't. And the way that you can achieve this huge scoop out of the rear is because you're using in-wheel electric motors. Yes. Now, this has been promised. Lots of people have talked about in-wheel motors. Was it English Electric Company? They had a car called the Lightning, which promised to have in-wheel yes, electric absolutely. motors. I don't think it ever came to fruition. How'd you do it? They were? Where'd you get them from? <laughs> well, there's an awful lot of car companies do come out with the idea of in-wheel electric motors. And you're absolutely right that people tend to default to onboard motors simply because there's more available and it's easier to engineer and so on. Having said that, they have been around for over 100 years in the Lona Porsche, which was a hybrid petrol-electric car in 1900. One of the very first cars. motors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these motors are derived from a motor that is built for military vehicles, in fact. It is the same diameter but it's about a quarter of the width so it's much less powerful much lighter but it's done by a british company down in hampshire called printed motor works hub motors are used in a number of vehicles off-road military all sorts of things so it's not as if they're unheard of they're just a little bit more expensive and the auto industry is so driven by cost that it's actually much cheaper usually to avoid them. That's the single biggest reason. But if there's a good reason to do it, it has been possible to do it for a very long time. Two? Or you've got four? Four. four, four motors, one yes. in every wheel. Yes. So they're not terribly powerful. They need to be quarter the power of a single motor, yep. and you can spread them around. Is that an engineering advantage or a disadvantage, multiplying a component like that? It is done specifically to maximise the energy efficiency of the car. At the moment, we are using these motors for our braking. And that is one of the core principles of the whole company, the whole architecture of the car. No pads and discs at all? There are pads and discs, Ah. but we have a phased braking system so that when you press the brake pedal, the valves close for all the hydraulic fluid to go to the calipers, so they aren't used. And until you get to point 3G, all the braking is done electrically. Right. Above that, the valves shuttle and bleed partial pressure, so you've got all the stopping power that you want for emergency stops and so on. The friction brakes also come in below five miles an hour because it's very difficult to get the braking force at low speed, low rotational speed. But we do want to have four-wheel braking. You need to have four-wheel braking, and so you need four electric motors. And if you only had two electric motors on the front wheels, for instance... 
40% of the braking at the rear would always have to be done by friction. Mm -hmm. So it would mean by definition you recover 40% less energy by going to two motors. And the reason why this is terribly important is because we've got a fuel cell sized only for constant demand. Our fuel cell is sized to keep the car going at the constant speed of 60 miles an hour. When you accelerate, 80% of the power comes from a bank of capacitors, only 20% from the fuel cell. And typically... As it happens, about 20% of the peak power of an engine is what a car uses when it's cruising on a motorway. But it's sized for that maximum acceleration. Mm -hmm. So for 90% of its life, it's got an engine that's 80% redundant and a gearbox that's 80% redundant. And therefore, you've got a chassis designed to hang on to these heavy bits that are much too big. Whereas in our case, we can size the fuel cell only for that constant demand and forget about the other 80%. And the fuel cell cost is very much tied to the power. So you can have a much, much cheaper fuel cell. But the only way you can do this is if you can rely on the supercapacitors for the 80% of power when you want to accelerate. And the only way you can rely on those supercapacitors to produce all that power is by having very efficient braking regen. And that is why we don't want to use any friction. And that's why we need motors on every wheel. Very reasoned answer, a complete answer, if I may say. No, no, not at all. No, I loved every nuance of that. There must be other advantages of having drive at each wheel as well. Are you able to shift power around depending on grip or conditions? It is the perfect platform for playing any tune you can imagine. (laughs) It's got huge advantages in simplifying the blending of friction and braking systems, Mm -hmm. and that we are doing already. Because the friction system, when it does come in, comes in exactly the same proportion, brake bias front to rear, as the electrical system. And you never have to start allowing for some electrical braking at one end and deducting it from the friction braking at that end to keep the balance the same. It is always and can only ever be a constant brake bias, which makes it much, much safer and and much simpler. And there are far fewer failure modes in the braking system and things like that. There are hybrid electric cars available at the moment, which the braking can be variable depending on the state of the charge of the batteries. And I think that makes them less user-friendly than they could be. I just go with it. But this eliminates that completely. It always breaks the same, no matter what, across all four wheels. Now, what we're not doing yet is any torque vectoring. Right. But anti-lock braking, traction control, electronic stability programs, all of that, we've got all the hardware on this car to implement. The only difference is software upgrades. So we've got the perfect platform to play all those tunes on, if you like. But we are focused entirely on building a car that works. And the brake pedal, when you press the brake pedal, the car stops. It's nothing more clever than that. (laughs) But we've got the perfect platform to take it on to do all those other things, which we need to do before we get full type approval for volume production. Most people don't care why a car works. They just want it to work, don't they? Focus on the important bits. Make make it efficient and make it reliable and safe. Well, reliable is something that is tricky to make. When you've built one prototype (laughs) so far, I mean, you have to build 200 and run them into the ground. Yes. How are you managing without the ability to do that? Because you're a little company. You're not going to build 100 prototypes, are you? Well, there's an awful lot of car companies out there who build cars and don't test 200 of them. And so we're not Volvo. We, we, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. accept that. Having said that, there are very, very few moving parts in the car. The only moving parts, really, are the wheels. So there's no metal-to-metal wear. There's no lubricants. There's no oil changes or anything like that. And there's no mechanical things, really, that are likely to break. You'll have suspension joints wearing out eventually and things like that. And then there's the electronics, 
which are all solid state. And as long as they are working with sufficient headroom, well within their rating, solid state electronics are fantastically reliable. And then finally, there's the fuel cell. And the fuel cell does degrade over a period of time. But unlike petrol engines, fuel cells don't really have catastrophic failure modes. Petrol engines suddenly stop. Something breaks. Fuel cells don't really do that. Gradually, their power output drops. And that's over a period of thousands of hours. And our car is wirelessly enabled. We haven't come on to this, but we're never going to sell the car. We're only ever selling a service, a performance contract, if you like. Mm. And so we're monitoring the car remotely all the time, collecting data because we're charging for the mileage. Mm -hmm. One of the things we are also collecting is data about the fuel cell. So we will know before you, the customer, does when the fuel cell needs replacement. And that is what we treat it as. It's a replacement item in the service schedule. So you say thousands of hours what's that five years people's use three years uh, we honestly don't know yeah. yet i mean we think that it will do about one hundred and fifty thousand miles that's four and a half thousand hours at sort of typical use there are fuel cells now that the auto industry are talking about that are doing six thousand hours twelve thousand hours in buses but for us it's not critical because at the end of life of the fuel cell it is refurbished mm-hmm. in the end of life of petrol engine all the value is in the tolerances and they're all gone you've got five dollars of scrap iron but at the end of life a fuel cell one of our fuel cell companies we work with reckons they can recover 80 percent of the value and of course it's of much greater value to them than it is to anybody else so we're not actually buying the fuel cell mm-hmm. we're buying the installed kilowatt hours in the car the fuel cell remains on the balance sheet of the company that makes it uh-huh. and when we replace it when it's degraded to 90 percent of its power output we take it out give it back to the fuel cell company and put in a different one. But they can refurbish it. There are no moving parts in there either. Most of the components they can reuse. Interesting. I want to talk more in a minute about what's effectively sort of a lease deal on getting the car. But the analogy I was thinking there was once upon a time, an accelerator, a throttle, meant exactly that. You pressed it and it opened up a bit more air into the carburetor and the car went quicker. Now when you put your foot on a throttle, it's an instruction for the car to work out how to go more quickly. And if you're talking about lease cars or renting cars to people, I don't know what the right term is, and you're offering a mileage and a service, it's the same sort of thing. You're shifting the focus from buying components to buying a service. Is that central to River Simple? Have I defined it right? Absolutely central, and it completely changes the car that you will make. Mm. Because if you're selling cars, you make more money by selling more cars. So your interests are obsolescence and high running costs. I mean, it sounds brutal, but that's the bottom line. Whereas in our case, we're selling the performance of the vehicle. When we've built the vehicle, it stays on our balance sheet. We want it to keep on earning money for as long as possible. Mm. We're paying for all the running costs, including the fuel and all the maintenance, obviously. So we want the car to be as reliable as possible, as low maintenance as possible, as efficient as possible, Mm -hmm. and to last as long as possible. So it's completely changed the financial drivers on the business. Mm. And if you think about it, obsolescence and high running costs are the opposite of what the customer wants. In our case, our interests are completely aligned with those of our customer. And the conversation with Hugo Spowers will continue. We find out more about River Simple's radical approach to personal transport. The more efficient we can make it, the more money we make. And Gareth goes for a ride on the roads of Wales in the Rasa. It does make a modern noise. Don't miss the next episode of Gareth Jones on Speed. 
To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!